Well, good morning, everyone, and a happy Sabbath to you. It's very good to be back in Loma Linda at Advent Hope, a place that was home to me on Sabbath morning every Sabbath for nearly eight years of my life. So it's good to be back, and it's good to see many familiar faces. And as Loma Linda goes, the turnover cycle is such that I don't recognize most of you, but that's fine. Um, But it's good to be here, and just a reminder that this afternoon, for those of you who may be interested in an in-depth Bible study on Daniel 11, we're going to be looking at some concepts there that relate to the present time, so I invite you to come out this afternoon to Cutler Hall. But this morning, I want to share with you a few ideas um, from the book of Revelation and elsewhere that I believe are relevant to the time we are living in. And before we begin, I would invite you to bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for bringing us out the Sabbath morning. And I just pray that you would pour out your spirit in a special way. And I pray that you would speak through me. Give me just the words that are needed, that need to be said this morning and May each one of us be in tune with your spirit, and may we be prepared for the coming of Jesus, and I pray that we would set aside any earthly distractions and just allow your spirit to speak to us now. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You know, as a Seventh-day Adventist, I still believe that Jesus is coming soon, and I'm proud to say that. I'm not ashamed to say that. I believe with all of my heart that Jesus is coming very soon, and I believe that we have a message of great importance to share with the world around us. And I will say this, that as I have looked at the news in the last few weeks, looking at the news hasn't suddenly made me think, you know what, maybe we as Seventh-day Adventists got it all wrong when we interpreted Revelation 13 the way we do. When I look at the current events and when I look at the news and when I look at, what's what, look at what's happening in the world around us, I see more than ever that history and prophecy are unfolding before our eyes. And you'd have to be really asleep to not see the significance of how prophecy is unfolding. I like how one of my friends who's a pastor in Texas said he said what more evidence do we need history and prophecy are unfolding before our eyes if we ever doubted the genius of Adventist prophetic teaching may today's images remove all the lingering skepticism in our minds you know when you look at scripture and as Seventh-day Adventists we have an understanding in Daniel and Revelation of um, the key prophetic powers that will exert worldwide influence just before Jesus comes back. And in Revelation chapter 13, beginning in chapter 13, we see this beast coming up out of the sea that has seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, he has the name of blasphemy. And we see it's a composite beast of a leopard, a bear, and a lion, and a mouth speaking great things. And we know that those beasts, this is a review, but we know that these beasts are the beasts seen in Daniel chapter 7. And after those beasts of Daniel 7, a little horn comes up and plucks up 
three horns out of ten, which were the nations of Western Europe, and that little horn has a mouth speaking great things, which is the same thing that we see in Revelation 13, where in verse 5 of Revelation 13, we see that this beast has a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And specifically, this beast the mouth is the mouth of a lion, and the lion in Daniel is the kingdom of Babylon. So the mind of this beast is the mind of Babylon, because I can tell you as a neurologist that your speech comes from the frontal lobe, and the mouth is the mouth of a lion, so it's the mind of Babylon. So here we see Babylon in Revelation chapter 13, and we see that just before Jesus comes back, after it has received a deadly wound, that deadly wound will be healed, and all the world will wonder after the beast. Now, this is a review. I think if you've um, been a Seventh Adventist for a long time, now if you're new and you're a visitor and you've never heard such a thing, I would encourage you to seek out some friends who could explain this to you because right now, Revelation chapter 13 is more relevant than it ever has been. And if you've never studied it before, you want to know what Revelation 13 is talking about. Now, historically, Protestants have had a very clear view of who Revelation 13 is talking about, the first beast of Revelation 13, and also the little horn of Daniel 7. And I'm not going to spend all of this hour talking about Revelation 13. I'm simply going to use that as the introduction to contrast that with the kind of experience we need to be having right now. But it's interesting to me, you know, when the Pope came to America just about six or seven weeks ago, um, the, the news and the media, it was splashed all over the, the internet and the front pages of the paper and on the television, and it was a big deal. This wasn't just a minor news event that America was paying attention to. This was a very big deal, and everybody was paying attention to what was happening, and in fact, We've never seen a pope address the joint session of Congress. And that's a significant event in that these are all the elected representatives of the people of the United States of America. That had never happened before. Well, I want to, want to read to you something very interesting that um, Dr. Albert Muller, who's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, this is what he had to say during the height of the buzz of the Pope's visit. And as a Southern Baptist, he is um, part of a denomination that still is a Protestant denomination. And so this is from a leading thinker in another Protestant faith community. And this is what he had to say. An interesting way for evangelicals to think about the Pope is simply to focus on how the Roman Catholic Church defines the papacy. What are the titles of the Pope? You know, because a lot of times people are like, you know, what's the big deal about the Pope? The Pope is here. He seems like a nice man. He's doing a lot of nice things. What's the big deal about the Pope? So Dr. Mueller says, let's just look into what the Catholic Church itself says about the Pope. This is what he goes on to say. The current pontifical yearbook includes these titles for the Pope, regardless of who the Pope is. In this case, this is Pope Francis. He is known as the Bishop of Rome. 
He is known as the vicar of Jesus Christ. He is known as the successor of the prince of the apostles. He holds the title supreme pontiff of the universal church. He is also the primate of Italy and archbishop and metropolitan of the Roman province. He is sovereign of the state of the Vatican City, and he is servant of God's servants. An unofficial title that has nonetheless been used in official Catholic documents also borrows a title from the ancient Roman Empire referring to the pope as Pontifex Maximus. The titles themselves indicate why historic Protestants in general and evangelicals in particular reject the papacy and do not do so merely as a marginal issue. Notice that. It's not a marginal issue. But come to understand that the Reformation itself revealed the unbiblical nature of the pontifical office and the fact that regardless of who the inhabitant of that office is, the office makes claims and the Roman Catholic Church makes claims about the office that are absolutely incompatible with biblical truth. And I say, praise God, that there are still Protestants who are protesting. And I would be happy if there were some Protestants in the Seventh-day Adventist Church who would protest that clearly as well. And then he goes on to say, to understand the centrality of this, just consider the words of the current Roman Catholic Catechism as it has to do with the Pope. That Catechism states in paragraph 882 that the Roman Pontiff, by reason of his office as Vicar of Christ and as pastor of the entire church, has full supreme and universal power over the whole church, a power which he can always exercise unhindered. So just remember that when... The world is saying, what a nice man, what a good pastor, look at all these things that he's doing. Just remember that the Roman Catholic Church has some very specific ideas of what kind of power is invested in the Pope and the office that he has. Now, it was interesting, as I was watching the news and looking at things, it just struck me. You know, I'm watching his joint session to to Congress, and seated behind him is the now former Speaker of the House, but at the time Speaker of the House, John Boehner, who is Roman Catholic, and the person he replaced him, Paul Ryan, is Roman Catholic, and the Vice President of the United States, Joe Biden, sitting right next to the Speaker, is Roman Catholic, and the Secretary of the State, John Kerry, he is Roman Catholic, and six out of the nine Supreme Court Justices, the same thing. It just tells me that as a nation, we have gone far away from our, our original Protestant upbringing where pilgrims from the old world of Europe fled the persecution of the Roman church state system to establish religious liberty in this nation. And now, in many ways, we are going back to, in fact, it's interesting, you know, some people were so caught up by the Pope's presence. There was a congressman who actually saw the cup of water that the Pope drank from and made sure that he got, grabbed that glass after the Pope left the lectern and drank some for himself. Now we laugh, but there's something significant behind that. Um, Dr. Muller goes on to say that he says, those who can get into physical proximity with the Pope are actually being extended a sacramental grace. That's why there is so much fascination with his presence. And then I'm going to say one more thing about um, the Pope, and then we're going to move on to the next part of what I had to share. And Dr. Muller says, two final observations today. 
One has to do with the fact that the media has shifted the story. When the Pope was coming to the United States, there was a great deal of attention being given on the front page of the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times. Paper after paper, a great deal of attention was being made about the political dimensions of the Pope's visit. But now, as of yesterday, especially given the public masses that the Pope held, the media has changed the story. The media are now saying, no, this isn't a political visit. This is a pastoral visit by a religious leader. As a matter of fact, one observer on National Public Radio said yesterday, let's face it, the Pope will be addressing a joint session of Congress, not as a political leader, but as a pastor. Now, Dr. Muller goes on to say this. Well, let's just state the obvious. No other pastor in the history of the United States of America has ever addressed a joint session of Congress. It is simply not intellectually honest to say that this man is appearing before a joint session of Congress simply because he is a pastor. No, there's a lot more to it, and we know it, and that's at least partly explained by the titles that are inherent in the papacy and all that is inherent in treating a religious leader as a sovereign mar monarch. And he closes by saying, this raises another interesting question. Why are more evangelicals not speaking out clearly and biblically when it comes to the papacy? And that's a Baptist, the dean of, or the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Friends, there are God's people out there who are noticing what's happening. And it's amazing to me that as prophecy is being fulfilled before our very eyes and as the world is beginning to wonder after the beast, and if you have any question as to the reality that someday Revelation 13 will be fulfilled where all the world wonders after the beast, all you had to do was turn on your television when the Pope was here to see that the Pope has universal acclamation, especially within this country. And it was interesting to me that there were even some Seventh-day Adventists that were saying, oh, why do we always make such a big about it when the Pope comes. And the reality is, is that it's a, a reassurance marker, as Pastor John Bradshaw of It Is Written says, that everything that we have always stood prophetically from the books of Daniel and Revelation is actually coming to take place before our very eyes. Now, I want to transition here. That, that's basically the main gist of what I have to say about the recent Pope visit and of the fulfillment of prophecy. But I want to transition here because when you look at the third angel's message of Revelation 14, and we see this beast power in chapter 13, and in Revelation 14, when we look at the third angel's message, there's the message of the mark of the beast. And if you worship the beast and receive his image or his mark in your forehead or in your hand, you're going to face trouble in the final judgment. And so nobody wants to get the mark of the beast, and yet so much of the world doesn't realize that they're following after the beast and preparing to receive the mark. But in the third angel's message, there's more to that message than simply the mark of the beast. It concludes in verse 12 by saying, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So there's a contrast, those who worship the beast in his image versus those who have the patience of the saints who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And in that we see faith and obedience. In the third angel's message, God's people have faith and they have obedience. And Ellen White makes an interesting statement. It's a familiar statement in Review and Herald, April 1, 1890, where she says, several have written to me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message. And I have answered, 
it is the third angel's message in verity. Then she goes on to say, the prophet declares, and after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. That's quoting Revelation 18.1. And then she says, brightness, glory, and power are to be connected with the third angel's message, and conviction will follow wherever it is preached in demonstration of the spirit. So the third angel's message, yes, we have the understanding of the mark of the beast, which is false worship. That is part of the third angel's message. But the other side to the coin of the third angel's message is not simply false worship. And if that's all you get out of the third angel's message, you're really missing the bigger picture. The bigger picture of the third angel's message is that justification by faith is the third angel's message in verity. And when God's people experience justification by faith, then Revelation 18 Verse 1 takes place where an angel comes down from heaven having great power. The earth is lightened with its glory. And then we see that brightness, glory, and power become connected with the third angel's message. And conviction will follow wherever the third angel's message is preached in demonstration of the Spirit. So that leads to the question, you know, we talk about justification by faith, but in a practical sense... What really is justification by faith? Look, if we have justification by faith, that is what will spare us. That is what will guarantee that we will not receive the mark of the beast. That will preserve us from following after a system that all the world is wondering after. So we want to have justification by faith. It is the third angel's message in verity. It leads to an experience where the Holy Spirit is poured out in latter rain power, where the earth is lightened with the glory of God's character. And when we preach, conviction will be attended by our preaching so that it won't simply be another lifeless message where we file into church, we file out, and we go on our regular daily duties as if nothing ever changed. Justification by faith is the key ingredient to the third angel's message. Now, when you look at justification by faith, it is mentioned four times in Scripture, specifically where it says the just shall live by faith. Now, justification is talked in many places, but this, the passage of Scripture where you hear the just shall live by faith is mentioned four times. It's mentioned in Romans 1, 16 and 17, Galatians 3, 11, Hebrews 10, 35 through 39, and Paul is the author in all three of those books. Yet he's quoting from one Old Testament passage, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, where the concept of just shall live by faith is found in the Old Testament. Now, interestingly, in Romans 1, the concept of the just shall live by faith is connected to the idea that there is power in the gospel, so much so that the righteousness of God is revealed in the lives of those who have justification by faith. And in Hebrews chapter 10, the concept of justification by faith is connected to the experience of those who are waiting for the coming of Jesus. And Paul does that based on what Habakkuk chapter 2 verses 2 through 4 says. Now I want to read to you one other statement, and then we're going to look at Habakkuk 2, with respect to justification by faith. <clears throat> and this is found in Testimonies to Ministers, page 456. What is justification by faith? It is the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. 
When men see their own nothingness, they are prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. When they begin to praise and exalt God all the day long, then by beholding they are becoming changed into the same image. What is regeneration? It is revealing to man what is his own real nature, that in himself he is worthless. So what is justification by faith? It's the laying of glo the glory of man in the dust. And the reality is, that as human beings, our natural tendency is to have great appreciation and respect for the glory of man. Isn't that not true? Now, why do I say that? You know how it is. And, and what I say, let me, let me preface this by saying there's nothing wrong with education and with having titles next to your name, and of being well-trained to do the things that you do. But what ends up happening so many times is that rather than giving the glory to God, we place glory in man for his accomplishments. And so, and by the way, we as Seventh-day Adventists are very good about lifting up the glory of man. In fact, I remember one time I was speaking somewhere, and I had to give them my bio, and, you know, you have your list of accomplishments and where you've been to school and how long you've done such and such and all of this. And the, the pastor who introduced me, he just started, I mean, it was, to me, I mean, I was not comfortable. He, he starts reading my bio and he's like, and Norman McNulty graduated from Loma Linda. And then he starts going down the list. And about halfway through, he's like, have mercy. And it was like, you know, now people are going to want to listen to what I have to say because of my earthly human accomplishments. And, you know, bless the pastor's heart, what he did without even realizing it was that he was lifting up the glory of man. And now with the glory of man, let's listen to the message to hear what the messenger has to say because of all of his accomplishments and accolades. And we do that. We say, well, you know, this person is solid because they have this many degrees and this many letters, and they really know their stuff because of this. And in so many cases, not always, but in so many cases, we leave out the, the working of the Holy Spirit in the, that person's life that has led them to the point where they are. And so justification by faith is the laying of the glory of man in the dust. And I want to take you to Habakkuk chapter 2 which shows this very point. Because, you know, I've heard that statement from Ellen White through the years. And just recently, I have found in Scripture the verse that makes very clear that justification by faith really is the laying of the glory of man in the dust. And so we're looking at Habakkuk chapter 2, and we're going to pick it up in verse 2. And we read, And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables, that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Now here's the original Joshua by faith verse in verse 4. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Notice this verse. The common experience of humanity is that our soul is lifted up. Look at me. 
Look at how good I am. Look at how much I know. Look at how good I am when I speak. Look at how good I am when I do this or I do that. Look at me. Look at my glory. Look at how lifted up I am. And scripture is saying, behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. And what you need is justification by faith. And what justification by faith does, it takes that self-glory. It takes that pride. It takes your personal self-glory and it lays it in the dust and it lifts up the glory of God, which connects us to the first angel's message. Fear God and give glory not to yourself, but give glory to him. That's justification by faith. And there's so many different ways that we can see the glory of man. You know, um, one of my personal struggles at times is um, when I go on Facebook and there's so many different debates that people like to have on Facebook and sometimes that can be healthy, but most of the time I find it to be not very helpful. Because basically what ends up happening is you'll have a debate and by the end of the debate, everybody still believes the way they believed at the beginning of the debate. But from the beginning of the debate to the end of the debate, a lot of times names start being thrown around like, well, you're this or you're that, and you're just like that because of this. And what ends up happening is it becomes about who can win the argument and who can look the best. And in reality, it's the glory of man being lifted up. And there's just so many ways that the glory of man can be lifted up. Now, I want to look at this Habakkuk passage a little bit more. Because this vision that Habakkuk is told to write the vision, make it plain upon tables, that he may run that read of it. If you look at the context of the book of Habakkuk, in Habakkuk chapter 1, the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, are on their way to take God's people captive. God's chosen people are about to be overrun by the Babylonians. And then Habakkuk receives this vision, write the vision, make it plain upon tables, that he may run that readeth. The vision is yet for an appointed time. Now, for those of us who are Seventh-day Adventists, we have an understanding that this has a prophetic end-time significance that there is a Babylon at the end of the world that is trying to overrun God's people. And then God speaks to Habakkuk and says, there's a special vision that God gives to his people who will be alive at the end of the world. And we understand that this vision relates to the 2300-day prophecy that points to 1844 where there was a tarrying time, but at the end it surely came and it refers to the time that Jesus goes into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary to prepare a people who will stand against the modern Babylon at the end of the world. And the problem, though, with God's people at the end of the world is that just like the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, we have a tendency to have our soul lifted up within us. Just like Nebuchadnezzar, the original Babylonian king, who said, is not this great Babylon that I have built? And it's that spirit of pride and self-exaltation that actually makes the religion of Babylon very attractive to all the world. When the Pope comes to the United States and all the world sees the Pope, he is representing a way of thinking that allows for the glory of man to be preserved. 
and that's attractive to the human heart. And yet Adventism has a message that says, you know what? We're not supposed to follow after a human leader or a human system that goes against the law of God. We are supposed to be following Jesus, and by faith we enter in with him to the most holy place, and he is in the most holy place seeking to lay our glory in the dust because our soul, which are lifted up, full of pride, it's not upright. And Jesus is trying to cleanse our hearts. You see, justification by faith is so much more than simply a legal declaration that enacts an outward status change. Justification by faith is the work of God in our lives of laying the glory of man in the dust and doing a work for us that we don't have in our power to do for ourselves. You know, especially for us as men, respect is a big deal to us. And if you disrespect me, I take that personally. And my natural tendency, if you dis disrespect me, is to fight back in a way that disrespects you. And the reason why I do that is because I haven't surrendered my heart to Christ so that if you disrespect me, well, my glory, which isn't anything, but in my mind it's all, all that, my glory has been crossed, so I've got I've to stand up for myself to let you know that you crossed me, that you disrespected me, and now I'm going to disrespect you. And what Christ is trying to do for us as a people is to have that glory laid in the dust so that we could truly say with Christ, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I'm surrendered, I'm crucified. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And I live now by the faith of Jesus. That's the third angel's message of justification by faith. The only way to have the glory of man laid in the dust is to be crucified with Christ, to be surrendered with Christ, so that when someone disrespects you, you're dead. You're crucified with Christ. So it's, you don't have to defend yourself because Christ lives in you. And so the life that you live in the flesh, humanly you want to fight back, but Christ is taking care of it. Justification by faith, the laying of the glory of man in the dust. Luke chapter 18 has a perfect illustration of justification by faith. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. And while we're turning there, let me say this. If you joined the Adventist message so that you could become famous or to gain notoriety, so that people would notice you because you're giving a message that is interesting and that brings attention and all of that, listen, you joined the wrong club. We're not in this to become famous. 
We're not in this to become well known and to be well thought of as in, in, with respect to the glory of man. We are in this to give glory to God, that he has a message that will bring glory to him in the hour of his judgment. And it, be, it can become very easy, though, when you see the attractive parts of our message to say, you know what, I could become popular, I could make a name for myself, I could do all these things in the name of Adventism, and yet the purpose of biblical Adventism is for the glory of man to be laid in the dust. Luke 18, 9 to 14, and he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Notice even here in this passage, the publican, he was laying his glory in the dust by the grace of God and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the Pharisee was saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like him. Now, interestingly, we as Christians, we as Seventh-day Adventists, often can have this attitude. And it can be in whatever camp you may fall in. You could be, you know, I hate to use terms, well, so I won't use terms, but you could be someone who says, God, I thank you. I'm not like those people over there. I'm thankful that I don't eat the food at Pollock that they're eating. And I don't wear the clothes that they're wearing. And I don't watch the things that they watch. God, I thank you that I'm not like that. Thank you that I am following the standard. And you know what you're doing? You're lifting up your glory, and it's not being laid in the dust. You can also be, God, I thank you that I'm not judgmental like those people. <laughs> I'm so thankful that people don't have to worry about what I do and what I do. You know, they know that I'm just laid back and I don't care about what you do. God, I thank you that I'm not so rigid like those people over there. And you're raising your glory up as well. And justification by faith is about laying the glory of man in the dust. And it does, in, in that sense, it really doesn't matter which camp you are in if you're elevating what you do above the glory of God. What is your motivation for serving God? And when you approach God in prayer, or when you see others that you may not be like you, what is your spirit towards them? Are you saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like them? Or are you saying, God, be merciful to me a sinner because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God we are all in need of justification by faith 
And the problem with Laodicea is that we think that we're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. We think that we have justification not realizing that because we're full of pride and self-glory that we really don't have the very thing that we need. And so it's a, a condition of spiritual poverty that would cause us to pray such a prayer as the Pharisee said that says, God, I thank you that I'm not like that. I come to Avent Hope every week and I pay tithe and I don't commit adultery and I say all the right things and I do all the right things and yet you're devoid of a living relationship with Jesus. And God is looking for people at this time of earth's history who will allow him, as he's in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, to cleanse our hearts from sin as he works on the issue of our pride. If you want to know how Christ is going to cleanse the sanctuary in heaven of sin, the, the biggest job and the hardest job that he has is to work on your pride issue, on my pride issue. Because it's very easy to have pride and appear sanctified at the same time. And so we say, well, I don't have anything wrong with me. I'm doing all the right things, and I'm saying all the right things, and I'm helping God out, and I'm doing his work, and you're doing it with a heart full of pride, saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like that. I have education. I have degrees. I can articulate things. I know what I'm talking about. I'm so thankful that I'm not like that person over there. And yet God is saying, if you stay like that, I can't really use you. And the challenge that we are facing as we come to the end of the world and as we see what happened just last month or six weeks ago, the world is looking for a system of worship that, that will appeal to that human pride of heart. And if you are not surrendered to Christ, ultimately you will find it easiest to go for a system that doesn't go at your pride. But God has sent a message. It's been a message that's been around for ever since the beginning of time, but it's received renewed attention in the last 160, 175 years. A message that God has raised up that would bring soul cleansing, that would bring the laying of the glory of man in the dust so that we would become like Jesus, that we would be willing to take up our cross and follow him, and that when our personal glory is crossed, rather than fighting back, we simply lift up Jesus. We simply reflect his character because when the final crisis comes, you may know every last point about what truth is. And by the way, I've, I find that more and more Adventists have become illiterate to truth. And you don't want to be illiterate to truth. But I, you could know everything about truth. And if your pride has not been humbled by the grace of Jesus, it won't matter how much you know when we come to that final crisis. And so Jesus is sending a message to us even today. Jesus is asking us 
to have the mind of Christ. Let me read to you Selected Messages, Volume 3, page 184. The soul-saving message, the third angel's message, is the message to be given to the world. The commandments of God and the faith of Jesus are both important, immensely important, and must be given with equal force and power. The first part of the message has been dwelt upon mostly, the last part casually. The faith of Jesus is not comprehended. We must talk it, we must live it, we must pray it, and educate the people to bring this part of the message into their home life. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So as I close, if you want to know if the glory of man has been laid in the dust in your life, it all starts in your home life. What are you like when, if you're married, your spouse pushes that button? Or your kid? Or if you're younger, if it's your parent that pushes that button? Or if you're a student here, maybe it's a friend here that you're rooming with, or whatever the case may be, in your home life, the mind of Christ, who humbled himself and was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, that is the laying of the glory of man in the dust. And as Jesus humbled himself, his glory is never seen more clearly than as he hung on the cross, and his glory will be seen in our lives as we are crucified with him. And so I challenge you today, don't go for a way of living where it's all about your glory and your pride and what you've accomplished and what you do and what you know and all of those things. Everything that you do, all the knowledge that you have, all of the abilities that you have, may it be used for the glory of God. And if good things happen, give the glory to him. Don't say in your heart, is not this great Babylon that I have built? May God use each one of us, I pray to be surrendered to him so that the glory of man will truly be laid in the dust and that people will say when they, have, when they see us, this person has been with Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.